Warning. The We All Have an X Chromosome podcast contains strong language and contains themes that may not be suitable for a workplace environment or for younger listeners. We suggest wearing headphones if you choose to listen to this podcast in a workplace environment without headphones we are not responsible for any consequences that may happen. If your two-year-old's first word is the F-bomb, it's not our fault. Listener discretion is advised. We are the children, the children of Zion. We have been left here to defend humanity's right to exist. No matter what the machines believe, we belong here, at this place, at this time. And with that, I present this revolutionary love letter to those who came before. Let's go. They call me Beat Rider, but never no heat hider. But I'm digital, fighting wars no one's hit to. Matrix division network system point two. Called the one, the neo, the novice, the noose. Rick Trinity will execute. Between the viral agents flagrant, engaged, no space to stay to take. What to take? Making model which coddle the nature of humanity. Basic profanities. people. Guess who has two thumbs and is in Zuck's jail for seven days? This bitch. <laughs> Yeah, I pointed out that, you know, Jamaica, the present day Jamaica was also built on the African slave trade and that there are descendants of trafficked Africans that live there. And so, yeah, you can be black and from Jamaica. And apparently that was offensive harassment and bullying. And I'm now in jail again. My And my name is Bill. And I'm Noelle. And visit our website, www.xchromosomepodcast.com. That's where you'll find all of our spo- special me- all of our social media, all of our blog posts when we blog, and links to our Patreon and other payment sources. Thank you, Patreon survive- survivors. <laughs> Ouch! Slow down, my dude. You're 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 blazing through this, and oh, I'm on you're es- crashing and burning. I'm on es- espresso and Adderall. So, <laughs> so you should be chill as fuck, dude. Why are you so fast? Because I feel chill, but my mouth is still going fast. <sighs> so we have a guest this week. We um, do, and we're super excited. Um, I met him through Twitter. Um, I, going through his Twitter, I feel that he's an amazing person. Um, he's he's a professional in his field, uh, Dr. William Coombs. Yes. How are you guys? Doing good. Uh. Well, I mean, <laughs> for a given value of good, both of your uh, interviewers are neurodiverse and have mental health issues. So our baselines okay. are there. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm right at home then. Right at home. <laughs> we promise not to make this a therapy session. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That we, we might talk about things that may seem like it, but not quite. <laughs> um, okay. So, because we like bringing professionals in, can you tell our listeners uh, your background a little bit? Absolutely. So, um, uh, first of all, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it for taking some time to chat with me a little bit. I am a clinical social worker and a therapist uh, right now working in private practice. Um, So, I'm seeing people kind of on a a long-term basis and helping them out with all their things. My caseload is very diverse, uh, which I like. Um, you know, I have kids, I have families, I have couples, you name it, I get to see it. Um, prior <laughs> to the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, just, that's, yeah. that's a lot. I did a tiny amount of time in a law practice that was basically kids, families, and civil matters. And that's a lot of heavy, yeah. all at once. It's a lot. <laughs> you, you get to, yeah, it, it is never a dull moment. Um, but I'm prepared for it kind of uniquely. Because, you know, I was telling Bill before we got on that my first job in social work was uh, actually as a uh, crisis intervention specialist. So my entire, like, it wasn't really a caseload. It was just, it was like a first responder kind of thing where everybody that I met was wherever they were, whether it be at the hospital, at a school, street corner, crack house, whatever's going on. We show up there and try to assess the situation, kind of determine what's going on with them. Um, and that job is something that I, I loved it. Because you really don't have a whole lot of time to build rapport with people when they're having their worst day. Mm. Um, so you got to be creative. You really got to be creative in getting people's attention and 
kind of get the, getting them into a safe space. And it showed me, you know, a very diverse uh, demographic. You know, you got to see it all. Like, there's not mental health touches everyone. So in any given day, you know, my first call is at a hospital with a six year old. And then my next call is, you know, at a, at a military base with a veteran. And then my next call is a 94 year old with dementia. So um, very exciting. But I think it prepared me kind of for where I am right now. Um, so sitting down talking to this group is that I have now is relatively easy. Um, before that, I spent 15 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, so that was my life uh, for a long time and decided at about the 15 year mark that there's other things that I want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I was good enough to stay. A lot of the question that a lot of people ask me is, why did you stop at 15 years? Why didn't you just go retire? And for me, it was, you know, I was ready to go. I was ready to do something different. And I identified that my calling and what I naturally do is this, you know, talk to people and get perspective and try to make people feel better. And um, so I started kind of putting the work to, to build in that and got to the point where I actually had leverage in the Marine Corps. They were like, you know, you're going to leave California. We're going to send you to New Orleans and that's where you're going. And I was like, no, nah, you know, I think I'll get off right here and start my new life. And that was pretty fulfilling. So, you know, here we are. So I'm Marine turned therapist and probably the most unconventional, weirdest clinician that's ever going to walk into your office. And hopefully that works to my benefit. Uh, we've got some questions along those lines, um, okay. which is pretty exciting. Um, we kind of asked for some viewer insight and um, the, the journey to being a healer starting out as a Marine is really interesting. I mean, I know there are Marines that become doctors all the time. Um, somebody has to take care of, of somebody has to take care of our soldiers, no, no. and it's a little easier when you get that brain that mindset already. For sure. Um, but you know how how did that perspective on being a Marine impact how you approached being a mental health professional, e- either in crisis intervention or in your slower, more in depth? private practice now? Oh, for sure. For sure. Great question. It helps. Um, The problem with a lot of military professionals is that they think that they have to take everything from the military into their new life. And a lot of those things simply don't translate. So the, the goal is to figure out what did I have that made me successful on one side that I can bring to the other and what do I leave? Um, So there's a kind of a no nonsense aspect to being able to talk to people, that really helps, especially in that crisis setting, because you don't really have a lot of time to say, hey, I'm William, and tell me about your family history, and blah, 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 blah. I really show up like, oh, you want to kill yourself? That's fucking stupid. Let's talk about it. And that's the, like, the splash in the water moment that they need to be like, wait, what? Like, why are you talking to me like that? And the reason is because I care. Um, that comes from that's really how you can address people in the Marine Corps. Now, you know, you see it from the outside looking in, some of the things that we talk about to each other sound terrible, but there's really a lot of beating around the bush that comes from that environment that really has value that I think people crave. You know, ultimately, people want to be heard, they want to be listened to, mm-hmm. and they want to be given a no-nonsense kind of assessment to things. So being able to bring a little bit of that and still be professional, but be authentic I think is what's kind of made me successful so far. You know, I tell everybody that I meet in my first intake, I became a therapist because I hate therapists. Um, and, and that's the truth because so many of us get stuck in that cookie cutter, cliche, same old, same old. I'm going to ask you the same questions and stuff. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work. So what happens is by the time they see me, they've heard everything that I'm probably going to say. You know, and, and this kind of played out when I was, when I was going through my doctorate program which I probably had no business being in. Right? I started my doctorate program 15 minutes after I finished my master's program because I had no, I didn't expect to get accepted. And then I did. So now I'm in a class with people who have been in this profession for 20 years. So like these are the gatekeepers of social work um, who want to move up to the next level. And I'm just here because I can't get a job and I don't want to be stagnant. So I might as well go back to school. Um, but the advantage that I had is I probably thought more like the, the, the clients than I did like them. I hadn't yet been tainted with that social worker touch, that clinical touch where we all say the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they give us a scenario like, okay, you have Johnny and he's on heroin and he needs, he's ruining his life. And they give us all a chance. And you have all these professionals and they're like, well, maybe, you know, I can understand why Johnny 
goes to heroin because he needs it to cope with this scenario, his situation, or I understand why he's doing it. And I'm like, why are we validating heroin? How about we tell him to stop doing that shit? Hey, Johnny, you're ruining your life, bro. Cut it out. And Johnny's going to get mad. And then we talk. Now we're having a real exchange of real emotion. And my peers were looking at me like, William, this is genius. And I'm like, you guys cannot be serious. So what I've learned is that the more that you rely on the profession and the credentials, the, the, the more that you kind of let go of your common sense and your, your, your personality. And, you know, I say I hate therapists because so many of them are willing to, so many of us are willing to lead with our credentials. Believe me because I'm a licensed this. Believe me because I'm a doctor of that. And I could tell you everything. And you think it's your fault because I'm not getting through to you because I'm the professional. I'm like, no, bro. If, if what I'm telling you is not helping you, that's a me problem, not a you problem. Get somebody else. But while you're here with me, you're going to hear what I really think. And if I can leave that with you, then I think that my job is done. Um, so just to, to answer you know, long, short question, long answer, a lot of that comes from learning how to, how to successfully do that and interacting with Marie. Yeah, I, I get it. It's there and as somebody who would cheerfully consume more mental health resources if I could access them affordably. Yeah. And Curiosity. Um, what did you do in the Marines before you became a therapist? Uh, yes, I'm a mil. I was an intelligence chief. Oh. All right, because I'm a military brat, yeah. so I was curious. Okay. Yeah, so I started off like way, way back in the day. I was an aircraft mechanic, mm-hmm. and I had no business doing that. <laughs> and then I, I started to to lat move, a lateral move to intelligence. Um, so kind of oddly enough, what comes out of that is now I'm the guy who's in charge of all the, the intel, all the secrets, everybody's security clearance, and my office is one of the ones that's it's locked, it's secure. So people kind of already had that vibe. When they come into my office, it's a safe space. Um, so people more often than not were coming in and telling me their stuff because they knew that I could be trusted not to, you know, not to say anything or not to put their business out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so oddly enough, you know, the, just that environment and that setting is where I started to notice, like, you know what, this is the kind of the part that I really like, you know, doing the job is cool. And the secret girl, secret girl stuff is, is really cool and awesome. But what I enjoy the most is talking to people. And, you know, that's probably the part that kind of started to tug at me a little bit towards the end of my career. That's, that's really neat. And I can see how that um, security minded knowledge and that because that gets ground into your soul my husband is a uh, uh, former signal corps and he's you know they're he's army and they're pretty security oriented too and he does weird stuff i still don't understand yeah but i'm pretty sure the house is safe yeah it's, it's uh <laughs> yeah. yeah it doesn't it doesn't really you know it doesn't go away there's, there's a lot of good value in learning that skill set um, there's a lot of other things too, because I probably learned more about people than I ever wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whenever anything happens with anybody's security, security clearance, the first thing they, first person they come see is the intelligence chief and decide if, you know, okay, do we have to pull this clearance? And I, I got to hear some wild stuff. Oh, I bet. Um, yeah. You know that. So, you know, it's a gift and a curse. Um, but I mean, it was, it was a cool job. It was, it was very, um, very fulfilling job. It, uh, we got to do some, some do some cool things. Got to learn a little bit about you know the capabilities and limitations of the country, um, and all the cool things that we got going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt like that there was there was more. There was more for me, um, you know. And so many people, I think, because you have a job like that, you know, you can pretty much leave the military and then go walk into Washington D.C. and and have a job for the rest of your life. And people will follow that trap because it's available, and they think that's what they have to do. And Oddly enough, a lot of those people end up living a life that they don't necessarily want to live. Like they never tried to pursue ex- what they wanted to do or what they're probably good at. They just did what you know what the manual says to do: get out and go do this forever. Uh, so it was a little different for me. Well, that intelligence training sort of absolutely set you up on all fronts for getting it, getting your nose into everybody's business. Oh yeah. Except instead of being the jailer, and you know the punishment because you had your weird shit is now my problem. Now I have to do something about it. Yeah. You know, definitely. From that, that negative uh, aspect to this positive. Yeah. I want my nose in your business because I care about you as a human being and you have intrinsic value. Yeah. It's it's a similar dynamic. You know, uh, you raise a good point. Um, 
you know, everything that I did was from a defensive mindset. So I want to be in your business because it matters how it does or does not affect the security of the country. Um, but the reasons why I'm good at that are the things that translate, right? I'm not mm-hmm. going into my therapy session telling people, you know, the only reason I'm not telling your business because I have top secret security clearance. So you better be lucky. You know, it doesn't work that way. It's because the reason why I was able to get that clearance is because, you know, genuine care and concern for people's people's business. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and then, you know, there, there's limits to that too, just like mandated reporters and the limits to confidentiality. Mm-hmm. The goal has to be to the best, best interest of the customer, the person that you serve. So, um, but they know that too, right? It, it, and, you know, if I ever have to tell anybody, hey, listen, you're talking about some things that I might need to, to report, I'd rather you hear it from me, William, the person, than from me, William, reading the script that I have to read. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to die tonight. And this concerns me. Versus, you know, as a mandated reporter, I have to say, if you want to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else, blah, 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 blah. So there's a genuine component to that, that, um, that I think that more people in this profession would benefit from if they relied on a little bit more. Like, be yourself. Be the person that got you the job, you know, not what the job wanted you to become. Mm-hmm. We have a, I, we have, we one, one of our questions from Patreon. I'm going to go through and use that for this um, because there's other ways that we could branch out, but I want to get this question out of the way uh, because it's going to be a doozy probably. Um, this is from Chris. Um, how do you think that social work will change following COVID-19? Hmm. Uh, well, I can, I can tell you how I think it will change. Um, and then I can tell you how I hope it will change. That sounds great. Um, yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. 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 What I think will happen is that COVID-19 will be the next big tag thing that everybody throws a bunch of resources at. Um, we have it just like, you know, for a little while ago, it was, it was PTSD. When PTSD became a thing. Then everybody, the VA, social workers, therapists were like, okay, we got to focus on this. And unfortunately, what I think happened is it became more about the process than the actual care. Uh, so you skip over the part of actually learning what people need and instead go straight to trying to find the solution. Right. That maybe they may, maybe never asked for. You know, um, case in point, it kind of compares to like like veteran homelessness, for instance. Mm-hmm. If you were to see, and we, it's kind of a big problem here in Southern California, there are homeless veterans all over the place. The social worker response to that is, oh my goodness gracious, this is a person who has served our country. They've kept our streets safe. We got to get them off the street and into a home. No questions asked. We do the right thing as good people. In reality, having talked to some of these people, you take somebody out of what was a comfortable situation. Like just because it's not familiar to us, it's not a crime to be homeless. And a lot of you know veterans, especially when they leave the military, they lose that sense of structure. Like they had a position, they were a platoon sergeant or commander or whatever it was, and that brought value to them. And sometimes in that homeless community, which is very complex, uh, they regain that. They regain that sense of structure. You know, my job is to make sure that these people get food for us tonight. Well, my job is to go get the drugs or my job is to get the the supply or whatever it is that they're doing. And then they regain that. So when we don't ask questions, but we just try to jump in and be the hero, we throw solutions at something that may not necessarily need the solutions that we're given. Uh, So it feels like COVID-19 is a great opportunity to do that. Um, What I hope happens is that social work becomes more social. Um, Case in point, truth be told, COVID-19 is just another problem that humanity has been faced with forever. There's always been COVID-19. There's always been dangerous viruses. Mm -hmm. The reason why it feels like the end of the world now is because we're all paying attention to it at the same time, and it's inconvenient. But there's never not been a day that we've existed in humanity where shit somewhere was not messed up pretty good. Um, So what I hope is that social work is is already in a natural position to be able to react to things like that. What is it that the people actually want? Why do these people think it's important to go to Sturgis in the middle of, the, of a pandemic? Um, why is that so much more important? There, there's, there's a story behind that. And, you know, as much as I'd like to just say it's just ignorance and stupidity, there's a reason why people think that way. So there should be a lot more of a social aspect. You know, de- social work needs to be decolonized and given the opportunity to have a group of professionals who actually care about what's going on with people instead of trying to dictate to them what the solution is going to if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of places where personal background intersects with mental health. Um, 
I'm one of the early and extremely I'm early ADHD kids, and I'm extremely lucky because I'm a girl, and it was recognized, and I was diagnosed, and I was treated. But the advancement as we've gone along, I have trauma from the way they treated it when I was a kid. Right. That intersects with who I am as an adult and my relationship with my parents. And, it, you know, it's baggage. And everybody is so intimately individual. There's, what, 25,000? I don't remember how many people were at Sturgis, hundreds of thousands. But each one of them or each group has, you know, very individual reasons. There are some collective broad strokes. Yeah. Um, one of which was probably we need to feel normal and we haven't for five months. Mm -hmm. So we need to go or nothing will ever be okay again, which is terrifying on a different level to me. Yeah. Because I'm, you know, I've lost quote unquote lost a, I've lost two jobs. I've lost hours. I've lost, um, freedom of movement. And opportunities. Um, I lost two reenactment events. You know, my life has been shut down too, but I'm reacting differently because of my personal background. And in the communities I'm a part of, I've noticed, and your thoughts on why this is a process are going to be super interesting to me. And you can speak to them if you like, but a lot of people seem to be going through a genuine grieving process. For sure. And I don't know what you're seeing, but I'm just an outside observer um, going, people seem to be mourning a loss. Yeah. Whereas I'm looking at it as, my schedule has been greatly disrupted and that distresses me because I have ADHD and I need routine and structure. So my structure fell apart. Yeah. And, um, but there's nothing to grieve. I can rebuild a structure. Yeah, I think... And I 100% agree with you. Like America is in a grieving process right now because our way of life has changed forever. For you know, regardless of what those circumstances are, things are different now than they were yesterday. Um, and that takes some adjustment, getting used to. It takes. But I think what our biggest problem is that we have had life so conveniently, especially in America, for so long that we forgot how to have problems. We don't. We don't know how to have problems. Like just think of when the first. When the pandemic hit at first, somebody was like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. How am I going to wipe my ass? I got to go buy all the toilet paper. <laughs> it, you know, yeah. And completely ignoring the fact that nine times out of 10, your toilet is right next to your shower. So that's not an issue. Like, if you have to wipe your butt, there's a way. But we're so convenient and comfortable with our way of life that we don't even know how to panic right. So things that are probably in the grand scheme, small scale, become big, big issues to people because they're, they're so used to having things their way. You know, there was a lady I was watching on the news the other day and she was, she feels like she's being bullying, bullying because she couldn't have her beauty pageant or something like that. I mean, they shut her beauty pageant down and, you know, it's easy to say in the grand scheme of things, who cares? Like, relax, lady. Like, there, there's an opportunity for you to do that elsewhere. Right now, it's not safe. But on her, her, her level, like, that is a problem for her. That was, that's something that has been a staple, I suppose, in her life. And it was enough that she felt like she was being injustice um, because, of this, because of this virus. So it is a grieving process because we really don't know how to live without being convenienced all the time. And, you know, and there's an intersection there, too, of who's ups who is the most upset at the disruption and the inconvenience? Yeah, um, I, it, it just seems like it seems on the surface, it, it's people who have, it's the people who are not used to being told no, who are speaking the loudest. You know, this is a new concept for them. Being told that things are different and you have to adjust and you have to change your life is really hitting people very hard because they've, that's never been an option. Some, there's never been something that they've had to consider. Um, so the suggestion that, hey, if we just shut the world down for a good month or two, then maybe we can expect better results. We don't get to have that conversation because we can't get past the fact that now asking someone to wear a mask is encroaching on their rights, um, which, you know, I have my own feelings about that argument. I, I think that's a little, a little extreme. But 
I think when you have a group of people who are not used to having to deal with things from a common sense, logical, um, unbiased perspective, that's the first thing that you're going to see is their true feelings. And though, I mean, it, it's their genuine feelings. They, they, people obviously really feel this way. You know, I've been trapped all this time and I must go to Sturgis because, um, you know, I deserve it. I'm not going to take it anymore. Well, you know, that's great and that's wonderful and I hope you have a good time. You know, and somebody, I think I, I posted something about Sturgis on Twitter the other day, and somebody came back and said, um, you just, you've never experienced what it's like to be on the open road and be free and ride a motorcycle. And I'm like, well, how can you say that? Like, I have. I'm a motorcycle rider. <laughs> I can do that. And I can, I can, I can experience that with 249,000 less people. You know, I can do that by myself. So the point that you're trying to make is really cute, but, you know, that's not really it. That's not the issue. Um People don't go to Sturgis to ride bikes. Yeah, they go a, to Sturgis to drink. Yeah, to party, <laughs> to hang out, you know, and, and like it's, it was we a non We used to go, yeah. <laughs> and so I know a little bit about Sturgis. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's really titties and beer. Yeah. And comparing bikes. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a car show where people are topless and drunk. Yeah. When I lived in New Hampshire, we had... Uh, motorcycle weekend yeah which was kind of like a sturgis and i was working at walmart at the time and we were like we have to be prepared for a motorcycle weekend because they're gonna wipe us out and they came onto our walmart and they wiped us out yeah no i get it these are big things like bike week and mm-hmm. um sturgis and these concerts coachella all this kind of stuff like it's it's great for what it is probably not the best idea when we're trying to get rid of a pandemic but you know, people tend to really only consider their feelings about things. You know, what's interesting is, you know, God forbid, all these people come back and they contract COVID-19. And then we restart this whole thing because now, you know, the number went from this many dead to this many dead. And these are now the same people who are flooding the hospitals, telling the mental health or the, the, the medical professionals that you got to do something. You got to save my family. You got to save me. My grandma's sick. You know, and, you know, there is a bit of responsibility that you have to take there. You know, was it worth your titties and beer fest that now, you know, your your parents are are on a ventilator or what have you? Um, And I think that that just overall compassion for other people's well-being is the piece that's missing. Mm. You know, it's a very easy conversation when you think beyond yourself what the implications are. Do we look stupid in masks? Yes, we do. Is it possible that you can contract the virus with a mask on? Probably. But... Is it really that big of an inconvenience for you to not do it if it means that that grandma that you just walked past gets to live another healthy day? And for me, I think that's... No shoes, no service, no mask. Right, you know, and then now you have the the counter thing. You know, people like to put put the name Karen on people, but, you know, now you have people who are just going into stores and acting a fool. Um, And, like, you know, what are you doing, bro? Why why are we doing But Why are you shooting people? It's that. That intersection of privilege and violence is really upsetting. You know, it really is. Um, and I got to see kind of the, maybe some of the problems behind the violence. That, like, that's the answer too often. There'd be people, you know, as, if I post something, for instance, about Black Lives Matter, and, you know, you have such and such dude acting a fool, doing what he's doing on camera, clearly, you know, being racist. And then you have people who come and respond to that you know, primarily Caucasian folks. And where they think that I guess they're agreeing with me and doing me a favor, it's kind of off-putting their response because they're like, man, I wish I could just punch her in the face. Or I wish I could, somebody needs to take that person right there and beat the shit out of them. And I'm like, no, somebody doesn't. That's the issue. That's part of the issue. Like, granted, yes, this person is a jackass. Yes, they are treating people unfairly. They're wrong. But the response, just by taking it off of one demographic and putting it on another is not the solution. And I wonder why that intersection of violence is so strong. Why is why are the things that are kind of veiled in false patriotism so ugly and so so violent, so scary? How hard is it to actually care about the people that are around you? Um, and apparently, it's very hard. Um, my thought in regards to that, just to throw this out there, um, because the the thought, thought about punching Nazis mm-hmm. and the fact that a lot of the stuff that we fought for with World War II and the people that had studied history and were starting to relive that and we literally defeated Nazis so we didn't have to have this. Mm-hmm. And now everything's coming back. So it's more like 
I think it like infuriates people that have studied the history in that regard um, that it's being allowed, period. And they don't know how to deal with that except for, er, I want to punch a Nazi because they never had to experience it before. Um, that's my that's my take on that. I think it's a bigger cultural thing um, than just, you know, anger and not knowing where to put it. Because our grandparents, and in some cases, some of our listeners' great-grandparents, went and fought a war. I'm sure the cultural roots of violent responses are kind of in your wheelhouse as a therapist, aren't they? Uh, partly, yes. Yeah. Probably more so in my uh, wheelhouse as a, as a black guy. But, um, no, they, all, they, 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 they do intersect. And um, it is very curious to me why, you know, that, that remains a thing. Um, I want to just bring up one other thing. This is this is more of a this is almost like a um a light a lighter question, so to speak. Okay. Um, you put a video out reminding empaths that are constantly checking on others to make sure that they check themselves first because you can't give from an empty cup. Mm-hmm. I believe those are your exact words. Right. I might be a little bit off. Uh, it was a short video. Yeah. But I was like, that was you're right. You're that's amazing. That's right. Um, what do you do to check yourself and to keep your cup filled? Uh, for, for me, um, and that's oddly enough, that is, uh, that post was almost like a reminder to myself. Um, so as much as it sounds great on Twitter, that's something that I need to work on. And one thing that I had to learn, you know, actually kind of taking a step back from Twitter a little bit, Mm -hmm. because I invited people into my space with the intention of saying, hey, you know, send me your issues and, and I want to try to help you out. Mm-hmm. And that was great until it kind of got out of my control. So where I was getting messages from people unsolicited almost like, hey, listen, Will, you might want to check on this guy because he's doing this or you might want to check on that guy. I'm like, well, that's not really what I'm here to do. Like, right. This is not really how this works. Um, so when you start recognizing things like that, when the process gets ahead of your own health, that's when it's time to recognize and take a step back. And sometimes it's just as simple as a hobby. You know, for me, I like to, uh, I kind of recharge on my own. So sometimes I sit down in my, my little man cave and I tinkle with music or, um, you know, I go to the gym and work out or whatever I need to do to just kind of have some space to myself that's not dedicated to anybody else. Um, because it does get that way. When you, when you get to the point where the thing that normally brings you joy becomes a task or a, a burden, not only does it start to affect you personally, but it reduces your quality and your ability to do that. Um, so for me, the social media thing, stuff started to irk me. Like I started to take things personally. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I'm reading through people's feeds and the first thing I want to say is like, who cares? Who asked you that? No one cares about that. And I'm, now I'm getting salty. And that's the sign for me. Like, you know, because um, that's what people do on Twitter. Like that's literally what it is. There's a bunch of people talk, yelling into the void. Um, and it should not affect or move my emotions at all right so the biggest thing is recognition you know because some of the people that i've seen on the crisis side who said that they've had issues with like panic attacks or even depression is because they be they be they're givers they're that linchpin they're that mom in the family who will always hold everything together and they set that standard to where everybody's used to getting their cup filled from mom mm. because she's she's always willing to give and give and give and give and that's their norm so they, they don't stop Next thing you know, you're talking to me in a hospital bed like, I don't know what happened, but here I am. I feel bad and I don't know what's going on. Well, that's really your body going, yo, pay attention. Like, you need to recharge. You need to take some time. Um, I've always told people in those settings, like, depression and anxiety are actually tools. They're they're necessary. They're, They're supposed to happen. You know, anxiety is like your spider sense. It is your body's way of telling you, like, bro, listen, things are about to get scary that may put your body in danger. Pay attention. But when that sense gets ahead of your ability to control it, that's when it becomes, you know, an issue. That's when it becomes a problem. That's when your body starts shutting down outside of your control. Same thing with depression. Depression lets you know that you're human. You're supposed to be sad. You know, I've met people in, on the crisis side who have said, hey, what's going on with you, man? And they're like, hey, I'm depressed. I'm like, okay, tell me what depression feels like. Well, I'm sad. I'm not motivated. I don't want to do anything, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, tell me what's going on with your wife or with your life. And they're like, well, my mother died two weeks ago. So then I'm like, so let me get this straight. Your mother clearly meant something to you, yes, and she passed away. And now you're sad about it. That's exactly how you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to be sad about it. 
that is your body's way of letting you know that you cared about this person. I'd be more concerned if you were in the hospital like, you know, my mother passed away two days ago and I don't give a shit. Like, okay, well, now we got, we got, we got to talk. Like, now we got some issues. Let's figure out what's really going on with you. Um, but these things are supposed to happen. Um, and people are, you know, often maybe too far in a rush to try to put the clinical diagnosis on it and try to treat something that really doesn't need to be treated. It's a characteristic that you need to learn how to manage that you've never had to put work to. Did I answer the question? I, I think I started one place and ended up in a different place. I just want to make sure I answered that's, the question. That's how this, that's how this works. Okay. That's how um, podcasting works. <laughs> okay. But, uh, whatever happens, we'll fix it in post. Okay. <laughs> that's cool. what editing is for. Um, but that's, yes, that's, you answered the question mm-hmm. and you had something really awesome and profound to say at the same time. And I followed the train, even if you're not sure there was a train. Yeah. Um, no, there, there was a train. But yep. it's the, you know, you were talking about what fills you mm-hmm. so that you can go and fill, fill other people's cups. Yeah. And be in that moment and, you know, help them be with their emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean doing that work. And, and I think the biggest key is recognition. Um, if I told you that I myself, Dr. Will, did not go through a sense of depression with this whole COVID thing, I'd be lying to you. I did, just like everyone else. It's depressing. Like We all think that we want to work from home until they tell us we got to stay here. And now I'm like, oh my God, get me out of here. Um, well, but a lot of times people... Oh, you neurotypical <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, Bill's yeah, laughing I'm... and I'm laughing too because we would rather be at home. Yeah. I mean, if I could take care of... I, I, I work in home health. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've kind of been home just not mine the whole time. But if I could do all of my work from my house and I could care for my patients without leaving, that would be great. Um, I did take, I think, four days off in a row um, partway through because my boss was driving me insane. That's just me being a selfish hypocrite, though. Because I did did home health, too. Like I, I had a job before this one where I was doing palliative care. So I was going to people's houses. Oh, and even in that job, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to go to people's houses every single day. I hate this. I wish I could be home. And then I'm home and I'm like, I wish I could go back to people's houses. So that's just me being, I'm just being a brat. The funny thing is, is like. I had to recognize that. When I'm talking with my therapist, my, my weekly therapist, mm-hmm. he always asks me, how am I coping with the pandemic? And I'm like, I'm good. I feel like I'm dancing on everybody's graves because I feel good. Yeah. Uh, because I don't have to commute. I can do my job from home. Yeah. I don't have to get stupid questions asked by coworkers. Yeah. That, <laughs> I don't have to wear pants if I don't want to. <laughs> and and that, that, that's me to me either. Like, that's great. Like, that's awesome. Like, I, I put on a polo shirt and just come downstairs and never have to put on pants. And that's great. <laughs> um, so it's really just me being whiny. I'm falling <laughs> into the same thing that I just advised against. Like, I had it convenient. And now somebody told me I can't do things. So now I have to find something to cry about. Like, yeah, this chair is too soft. And I have to sit in it all day. And I wish I had to put on pants because now I don't get to wear my cool socks. Like, I just, like, it's, it's dumb. But that's, that's the work, is recognizing why am I really upset? Like, why am I really letting this thing depress me? And when I say it out loud, I'm like, okay, this is dumb, bro. Like, you're good. You're good. I can continue my job from home and still help people. And when I'm done... I can go sit in the living room and be off. And that's not a bad thing because when this thing is over with, I got to take my ass back to the office. I'm going to be missing these days. So, you know, I'll be the one trying to not wear pants to actual work and get myself fired. So that is the human experience. And I think that we all go through it. The human experience is whining. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it, yes. And, a lot of it, yes. And that's a very legitimate thing. And I, I respect that. Yeah. But I've noticed a lot of my friends are very stir crazy. And I'm not. Like, they're, they're hating it. Yeah. And they hated it from day one. And they're like, this was cool for like a week. And now ever, I hate everything about my house. And I need to leave. Yeah. And I'm like, no. I, I would prefer to stay home. Yeah. Like, when I took that time off, I'm like, I don't feel any urge to go do anything yeah even on my days off i'm like yeah i could go for a walk around the neighborhood or i could not put on pants and i don't know if it's just a personality thing again it goes back to the there are people who are mourning Mm -hmm. 
And then there are people, there's pro- there has to be more than just me, who's like, well, this is an inconvenience in my routine. My whole world is upheaved, and that makes me uncomfortable. How do I fix it? Yeah. <laughs> what do I need to do to build a new set of systems so that I feel in control? And that's a step that a lot of people are not willing to take. Um, you know, that's, that's the key to it all. And I think that's the difference between people who are still mourning and people who are learning to kind of adjust to this, you know, it's, it's, it feels better to just sit back and complain and whine than it does to actually do the work. Why am I feeling this way? What do I really miss? What do I need to change? Um, how can I take advantage of this time? What can I teach my kids that I haven't been able to teach? Because, you know, they actually have an opportunity to not learn dumb stuff that they're never going to do again, like algebra. Like, what can I be teaching them in the interim? Um, credit reports and, and taxes and stuff that they really need to know. Um, so it really, I think you're spot on. And, and the way that you, you've learned to deal with it is because you have that awareness, that recognition. Like, okay, things are different. What are we going to do about it? That's always the question. So what? What are you going to do? You got two options. You can, you can figure out a way to live happily or you can die miserably. And that's really what it comes down to. And there are so many people who are just more comfortable taking option three doing nothing and just complaining about it, including me who has to put on pants. Like, I'm <laughs> like, man, why? Oh, man, I'm so, I'm so oppressed. I have to put on pants today. Well, pants um, are oppressive. So. Just <laughs> off topic, dress codes in general are oppressive. And I take great joy in pointing out that in the state of Ohio, you just have to have a G, a, a G string on. As long as your junk is covered, you are legally dressed. Yeah. Well, it's, in the state of Ohio, it's a it's a conversation people, that people really are not really to take seriously. Yeah. I mean, if you take a take a woman and send her outside in a bikini, nobody says anything. You send her outside in a bra and panties, which is essentially the same thing. Everybody's gonna go nuts. And it's the same. And no one has an answer for that. The other the other comparison is that you know the state minimum requirement for fabric is now two pieces of fabric that are roughly the same size in the state of Ohio. A I, th- I think I pointed this out on Facebook before I got locked up <laughs> again and again. I keep saying shit that white people hate, and they tell me I'm bullying them, and they report me for that. Uh, but it was, you know, a two-ply quilter's cotton mask has about as much fabric in it as a pair of bikini briefs. Yeah. Nobody complains about being told, you have to wear underwear. Yeah. <laughs> or a bare minimum covering. Nobody wants to have your genitals forced upon them. Right. And Well, these are questions that they've never had to ask. Yeah, it, they've never had to answer to. Well, they've also never thought about it. And right. Well, they don't have to. Like, yeah, that's kind of, you know, I had a, a discussion also on Facebook, which I, I can't do Facebook anymore because it's really just showing me all the people that I really thought were smarter, you know, kind of on some different stuff. Yep. But the idea of white privilege. Oh. Which... Yeah is very incendiary, incendiary to a lot of people. People see that as a slur. And I tried to explain that it's not a bad thing. White privilege is not a slur. It is a recognition that there are just some things that this country has set up that a certain group of people don't even have to think about. You don't have to worry about these things because they've never existed in your world. Not knowing that you have a certain privilege is not a crime. That's not a bad thing. It only really becomes a bad thing when someone openly denies that it exists. Because most of the time that denial comes from a place of ignorance. You're, you're denying it because you've never had to, had to deal with it. But that doesn't make it untrue. I've been poor all my life. I have the privilege. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, well, you know that's great. That's wonderful for you. Um, I sat in the sauna one time and listened to a man who had to be, I think he was in his 70s old Air Force veteran, you know, and he's one of the guys back when the gyms were still open and everything was good. Mm-hmm. And he was telling a story to myself. I think there was a, like a Middle Eastern woman and a, you know, African-American female. And he was telling us a story about how affirmative action ruined his life when he left the Air Force because he couldn't get a, the job that he wanted because affirmative action came into play and they were hiring more minorities. And mind you, his audience is all minorities. So we're listening to him. We're like, you know, what was you? Um, but continue. And he's, he's telling a story. And he's really genuinely telling us how he feels like he was wrong. And then he goes into this part. Well, luckily, I was able to work for my dad who owned such and such factory. 
And so I was able to make it and still get by and everything was good. And, you know, we owned that company and we sold it for millions of dollars. And I'm just listening to him like, do you hear the advantage that you have, right? Not only are you telling me that a program designed to help other people get opportunities where they didn't have them otherwise is now counterintuitive to you, but you also have the opportunity to, to own something, right? You, you, already, you have a backup plan that puts you in a better place than any of us in this room could ever get. And all he was focused on was how wrong, wronged he was. And that was kind of white privilege in play. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that, I think the man genuinely, I mean, he had valid points and he genuinely felt the way that he felt and nobody really took it as hostility. But to be able to see that play out, the privilege is what gives him even the balls to have that conversation with that group. You know, like, do, do, do you hear yourself and do you realize who you're talking to? And that's a, not a thought that ever had to cross his mind because what he wanted was inconvenience and it was different than what he was used to being exposed to. And he still made out okay. Reminds me of a recent thing that I witnessed. Um, I did a, while I'm doing a Facebook live right um, a friend of mine, he's a friend of the podcast, um, he made a post uh, that was one of those graphic posts that were like, um, it says it was like, it was about professionalism and how professionalism is basically a, a white subculture, so to speak. Um, and a lot of people agreed with it because what's surrounded by professionalism usually is like, you're only professional if you do these things. Right. Anyway, his father comes in and he goes, you're wrong, blah, 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 and goes on this. And there's like 10 different people, I'm watching this, 10 politely talking to this man, explaining why his version is supposed to be correct, but how it doesn't actually work in practice. And he's still denying everything, denying everything. And they're going through and they're just trying to be polite, just trying to have a conversation, just be trying to be good people. Right. And one of them was saying the word fuck. And he's like, I can't have this conversation. You're all animals. It's like, because one person said, fuck, you're not, you're dropping everything. Really? It wasn't me, was it? <laughs> it was not you, no. Okay, because, you know, there's been a distinct lack of fucks said by me in this podcast. Yeah. A podcast known for me saying the word fuck a lot. Um, so there, there, we've at least said it once. We're covered. Um, I got your back. I say fuck a lot too. Okay, this is, this is, this is right at home for me. Yeah, yes. this was you're allowed to swear a lot on this podcast. It's fine. We're tag. We're flagged on Spotify as you know. There are adult words and adult things, and we try to content mark as much as we can because again, we're trying to be respectful of mental health. Right, right. Um, and we don't want to hit. We don't want someone to have us in their you know feed on Spotify or wherever they listen and you know they're just going along in their day and then suddenly oh shit they're talking about really heavy stuff I wasn't ready for right and now I'm crying on the highway <laughs> not good <Yeah. laughs> we we don't want to be those people but you know our we've gone so many awesome places and our our questions were a good jumping off place um but I think you've touched on it a few times um you did about the culture of violence as a solution and how you could speak to that because you're a black man. Mm-hmm. How else does that experience inform your practice? Oh, well, it's, it's very different. Um, it is a challenge that I have come to appreciate. Um, it can be a little frustrating at times because, you know, when they say the therapist is coming to see you, the last thing they expect to see is, is me coming into the room. And that's just, you know, my profession is dominated by Caucasian women. Caucasian is just what it is. So my black ass shows up there like, what is this guy doing here? He's the therapist? And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm the therapist. What's up? And, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, but it's been something that I welcome because it's, it's a dialogue starter. Um, I've experienced a lot of different kind of responses to me. And I tell people that one of the things that I enjoy being is a, like a stereotype breaker. Um, I don't want to be put into anyone's box. Um, so at any point in my life, if you check in with me, I'm in a totally different place. I grew up in Baltimore city in the middle of the hood. Um, not the easiest place in the world to grow up, but that was my, my upbringing Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't trade it anywhere for the world. You know, I spent 15 years in the Marines. I'm a veteran. I did that thing. Um, 
uh, went to University of Southern California and went and got two degrees. So there's people who see me at different points in my life who wouldn't believe the other parts. You know, if I go back to Baltimore, there's a lot of people that's going to be like, no way you're you know, a doctor of social. Likewise, on the academia side, like, no way you came from the hood. Like, you've lived in suburbia all your life. No, it's not the case. Um, and that experience on the therapy side, you know, you get to see kind of the stereotypes that people have. That's kind of why I, I'm so quick to blow it up. Um, the first thing that I'll say coming in the door is that I hate therapists. Um, that's, you know, you have to know that about me. I'm here and I'm not going to be like anybody that you've ever talked to. And if the only thing that you get out of this is that I'm not the kind of therapist for you, you're going to get that shit because you're going to find out Like you're going to get all of me. Um, but what I've learned more often than not is that people tend to either be so caught off guard by that, that they don't make it become a fact, or they learn to appreciate that it's very different, you know, um, if you meet 10 clinicians this week, nine of them are probably going to tell you the same thing. They're probably going to look the same way, you know, and that's just what it is. For some reason, a lot of therapists look very similar. So my black ass comes walking in the room like surprise, and it's already different. And I consider that to be an advantage because I want it to be different. You know, I want, you know, you might have heard this same message over and over, but I remember that one black guy came in and he was different. He talked to me different. He said, fuck, just like that lady on the podcast all the time. And... I remember him, and that's really what I want. Can you remember the things that I'm saying so that we don't repeat this crisis? Um, so you know, it works. I, I like it. You know, I, I love being black guy, and that's not something that I, you know, I, I figured if I'm gonna live my life in this skin, I'm gonna make the most. And it's definitely challenging in this country at times, but you know, that just kind of is what it is. How does that being black in a predominant in, in a white dominated field specifically white and female because a lot of these softer things tend to fall in women's laps right. um just in general we're socialized to handle this stuff from like here are some dolls talk out your problems right just look at the show look at the way shows are programmed based on audience my little pony friendship is magic is all about talking out your problem and that resorting to violence is wrong and i love that it resonated so much with a male audience on some level because it was kind of a sneaking some deprogramming in yeah. to their lives with bright colors and shiny objects um we are magpies but being black and you know i'm sure once upon a time you used to go to conferences when there were conferences and you would give talks and you would be involved and even in your doctoral program Sure. You said you jumped in, you know, right out of out of your getting your master's and that that was weird. Yeah. And that you probably did it backwards. Um hundred percent. You didn't, it's fine. I know, I definitely one hundred percent backwards. I did my library degree the same way and we all we're both fine, so yeah. there's clearly no rules. Um but to step into that space in your master's program, in your doctoral program, in pursuing this career, how have you had to deal with, you know, where the, the intersection of your blackness and your desire to be a caregiver in this way and to be a healer in this way, how have those informed and impacted your relationship with the profession? Oh, no, we just lost a bot. Okay. Um, with the profession and with other professionals. Um, it, it's definitely, it, it's, it's a part of the conversation. You know, the, the weird thing about being in this profession is that everybody is always kind of on their heels. So nobody ever wants to say the offensive thing because we're all so socially conscious. Um, so it's fun to kind of blow that up sometimes um, because everybody knows, like there's an elephant in the room. Who's this young black dude in here? And what do we say and how do we address it? But we don't do that because we're the kind of people who don't see color and blah, 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 blah. And then I show up in the room like, what's up, guys, I'm black. And they don't know what to say because I'm just like, you know, I I'll blow that up. It's, it is what it is. Um, but, I mean, you feel it. You definitely feel it. And, and you're right. A lot of it is rooted in stigma. You know, a lot of it is part of the problem. There's a reason why men are traditionally hesitant to seek out mental health help because we're told to be tough. You know, we don't want to do play therapy and sand therapy. And the last thing we want is, you know, Mrs. Social Worker to come in here and tell us how to be better. Um, and that's wrong. That's backward because mental health is is extremely important as the world is coming to find out. Uh, but it, it, it's rooted in dangerous history. And, and then on top of that, 
because the profession is built predominantly by Caucasian people, what you have in clinicians is a bunch of people who just want to help. Like, I just want to go into this neighborhood and help these people and give them the same things that I have access to because I'm empathetic and I care. And while that is a great notion and a great thing to do for people, it can be counterproductive in a way because you're going into an experience that you're not really familiar with. And, you know, from from demographic to demographic, people have different issues. Um, You know, one thing that I kind of learned here working in Southern California is that the region that I worked in crisis was very diverse. So there were some some parts that were kind of hood and there were some parts that was like real housewives of, you know, Orange County, basically. So, you know, my first call of the day might be in a city where, you know, a kid is tired of dealing with, you know, his abusive stepfather and his mother doesn't have any, he doesn't get to see his mother because she works all the time and he's having issues, like some, some serious heavy problems. And now I'm seeing him because he can't take it anymore. He wants to kill himself. Finish that call. And then I head down to another city, you know, suburbia, so to speak. You have a kid who wants to kill himself because he got his iPhone 10 taken away. You know, very, now two totally different problems, each both real. And my job is not to say, well, you know, you got people over in this city who have it way worse than you, kid, because his problem is his problem. But his experience is different. So when you have somebody who grows up in that experience where, you know, you know, you're looking over the fact that you're privileged enough to live here and have these. And then you take that person and you tell them to go try to fix something in a poverty inner city neighborhood. It doesn't really translate. And all they see is someone who's coming into your neighborhood trying to save you, or trying to give you something that they really don't have experience with. So for me, it helps to have gone through that life. It helps to give me a broader perspective, but it teaches me more about being open to the scenario because likewise, me walking into Beverly Hills or anything, any, you know, I don't work there, but if I did and there was a problem, I have to recognize what it feels like to not be acknowledged because my problems don't necessarily equate to your problem, if that makes sense. Um, so having that broad sense is what really makes the profession and how it affects my relationship with the profession. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the social work industry of trying to di- more diversify and trying to get more people that look like the people that they serve into the profession because um, it can be very counterproductive to do work that you really don't understand. That's almost a perfect thing to end on. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty much it. That's why we're silent is we're like, well, yeah, where like, do we go from I, there? That's so perfect. Break the pie, yes. <laughs> now, you, that, that sort of encapsulated most of the, the questions we got. Um, as sort of starters, it was how do we need to change views on mental health in the African American community? Um, and you answered that before we asked it. With um, the profession has acknowledged that there is a serious problem in itself that therapists who aren't from the communities they are trying to help can't identify. Right. I know my my brother is a perpetually recovering addict. Um, this is not news. Um, and it's not a secret. It's there's court records and he's been in programs and been, you know, sterling example of a program working for as long as it works. But the underlying problems are he has mental health issues and some stuff to work through that I don't think he's ever really worked through. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's a lifelong journey. Yeah. And, you know, I've gotten to see a lot of different people at a lot of different places in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think the best way to address it really is everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. Um, people tend to try to, and I posted about this the other day, they tend to see themselves as the star of their movie. Mm-hmm. And then everybody in them is like a co-star. So they treat them as, a, treat them as such. They treat them as supporting cast, right? So in reality, everybody is the star of their own movie. There is no supporting cast. Mm-hmm. Like a bunch of A-list Brad Pitt's walking around <laughs> living their own movies. And they interact and they, they, they you know, co-mingle and intersect at times. But if we were more willing to treat people like the A-list person that they actually are, a lot of this stuff would take care of itself. And sometimes not knowing and understanding that you don't know is the most important thing. You know, I cannot relate to this experience, but I'm willing to help you in any way that I can. Does so much more for people than let me tell you how to live a better life because clearly you don't know how to, mm-hmm. you know? So. But that... I, you know, a therapist who has either had years of experience and specialized training in reaching that dialogue point is what will help him, or 
a, a therapist and social worker who has taken that journey yeah. and is at a place further along and he can look at and say, okay, you know, I, this person actually gets it. Right. No, there, there is value in understanding um, why you do the job. And that's, that's the biggest thing that I think some people get into it for the wrong reasons. They want to help. They want to save. When in reality, that's not the I cannot teach anyone how to be a better version of themselves. They already own that. My job is to show them what they may not be seeing in themselves and then give them the tools to make that change themselves. Um, that, that's on them. That's personal work. But I cannot do it for you. Uh, you can't be the savior. You can't be the hero. And if your gift, like in my case, I realized that my gift is talking, listening, and regurgitating. If I can make you feel, someone told me, and I have a good friend of mine who told me that the reason why white people listen to you is because you have a way of holding their pain without making them feel guilty about it. So they're willing to listen. Um, and that's whether that, that's not really my intent or anything, but if it works, then great. If, if I can hold this for you and let you understand what it is that everybody else is seeing, maybe that gives you a little more insight. But after that, ball's in your court. What do you, what do you want to do? So you see therapy, uh, being a therapist, more like being a mirror. 100%. I, I've said that verbatim. My job is to be a mirror. And, and even, even more so than that, imagine a portrait and you're inside of that portrait. And you can only see your position in that portrait. So you don't know where you are. You don't know where the frame is. You just know this is where I am. I'm the person who is looking at that portrait from outside the frame. So I can help you navigate. Oh, yeah, you're in the, the top right corner. That's where you, if you want to be in the bottom left corner, these are the steps you have to take. This is what I see. So now you have that worldview of your picture. It's kind of like intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. My job is to take information, turn it into usable intelligence so that you can make well-informed decisions. And that's kind of come around full circle. Yeah, that's, that's how you end it. Okay. How about, how about that? <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to go through and plug or anything like that? Yeah, how can we help you in your work since we're throwing this out, in, since we're screaming into the void and sometimes people listen? Oh, um, um, I, I keep talking. I mean, keep doing what you do. I think that people who have a unique ability to capture an audience are almost cursed with an obligation to do that. Um, to be able to talk to somebody and have them willing to listen to your perspective and learn something is important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll, we'll obviously be connected on Twitter you know, as long as we're both doing that. So you, know, you always have access to me and my thoughts. But my advice to anybody who's listening is if you see things a certain way and you have the ability to help people understand, please be willing to consider taking that step. Because, you know, a therapist is, is really just another person. Um, you know, the education is great. And the education is what gets you qualified and gets all the letters behind your name. But at the end of the day, it's a person who cares about people. And it doesn't take school or anything to be able to do that on a basic. So um, I think you're already doing it. Um, using your platform to reach as many people as you can and to give them a view outside of that portrait is huge. All right. That very well wraps things. Yeah. I think. Thank you so much. Someone doesn't actually say that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry that all that's all we can give you is gratitude. Um, because this has been this has been lovely and um we're broke. <laughs> Otherwise we would be happy to compensate you financially for the work you've done in sharing with us tonight. Um, uh, I think you've done plenty. I appreciate you for having me. Um, don't ever tell me that you can't talk to me again. Um, that was the first thing. I was like, what? No way. Like, talk to me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a dude sitting on a couch. That is, that is all I am. So I have somebody else lined up who's like somebody. It was on Facebook. Somebody told him, you should have a podcast. Or he said, I should start a podcast just so I can, you know, continue to piss people off and reach a broader audience than my Facebook feed. Uh, yeah. And I said, do you want to, do you want to come on mine to test the waters and see how you feel about yelling for an hour? Yeah. And he said, sure. And I'm like, guess a black game developer entertainer who's been impacted by this in a way that the average American cannot comprehend because we mostly do desk jobs and then go home and we're not trying to make money working a festival circuit or a con circuit or you know sell sell and develop games to people you know so yeah, speak on it speak on it yeah i'm looking forward to getting him scheduled too um oh. remind me to set up that 
group chat in Facebook after okay. I slept. Thank All you. Right. All right. So I want to thank Dr. William Coombs for being with us today. Yes. Uh, again, our website is www.xchromosomepodcast.com. All of our contact information is there and available. Um, my name is Bill. And I'm Noel. And we all have an X chromosome. Good night, everyone. Let's go. They call me Speed Rider, but never no heat hotter. But I'm digital, fighting wars no one's hit to. Matrix division, network system point two. Called the one, the Neo, the novice, the noose. Or a trinity will execute. Between the viral agents flagrant, engaged, most basic of state to take. Undertake, making model, which coddle the nature of humanity. Basic profanities into the insanity that's branded me. Give it up with the reloaded messaging. Look down between the test and blessing. But before I get lost in this train of lyrics, let me reverse to raise the solemn spirits. Getting weary of the revelation theory. Fabrications constructed from peaceful memory. Comparisons between the old standby queries. Fragmented delusions made up like you don't hear me. Shines down on our faces before descending into hell's traces. We can't replace this. EMPs ready to be unleashed. Nebuchadnezzar slip streaming like a beast. Oracles architecting a congregated feast. String them up like a martyr and will no peace. Plato pointers, they'll see the message. Too busy, look at the cameras, judgmental dresses. The siblings graduate what could only be an epic, but this won't be regarded, cause their hands back it. Machines pouring in, guns blazing, Zion needs saving, humanity crazy. On us, we can blame it. Life on two, babies wasted. Human embryos in a slave ship, in a slave ship. Put down to the words, their bones, their purpose. Lift up the human spirit, the soul, and it's worth it. I think they getting bloated, they gassed and they show it, well time to get reloaded More Sonic than Neo and me and Alpha come and take this And make this so colorful, you think this was Animatrix When you hear this style, yeah, you best go ahead and take a whip Because once we're done, you feel more blending than Agent Smith Business by day, hacker by night, party mullet time Slow it down before you stop Trying to take it, the world was fakeish. Back in time, the machines had made this. Even if the world could get no faker, we got a crew Morpheus, Trinity, and the Keymaker. Never fail to neglect through all the fun. There will always be a chosen one. If you got a high rank diploma, I'll disable you even if I fall into a coma. Coma. Son, Holy Ghost.